Over the last several weeks, we've been talking about how to intensify courage, and I've been trying with all of my heart to encourage you. And part of what I've said is that in order for us to get to our God-dreamed future, we must take courage with us. Now, this idea has its genesis in the life story of the Apostle Paul. Toward the end of his ministry career, he was preaching to a large crowd in Jerusalem, as we've discussed the last couple of weeks, when a riot broke out instigated by people who were threatened by his message about the resurrection of Jesus. And he was then arrested in part to keep him from being literally physically torn apart. And it appeared in that moment that his future was bleak and that his life might be taken from him. But that night, Jesus appeared to him and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That's Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Jesus saying to Paul at a bleak moment in his life, Take courage, because in essence, Jesus was saying, I have a plan for you in line with your destiny, and I am going to take you from where you are now to a preferred future. He was telling Paul that he had an assignment for him to go to the most influential city in the room, pardon me, in the world, Rome, to stand before Caesar, the most powerful man in the world, and to share the good news about Jesus with Caesar. And Jesus is saying, in essence, Paul, I'm telling you, even though you feel like you're about to be torn apart right now, I have great plans for you, but know that to get from here to there, from Jerusalem to Rome, from this difficult place to that preferred future, you're going to have to take courage with you. Paul then faced a myriad of challenges and setbacks on his journey to Rome. It took him two years. Five chapters in the book of Acts detail this journey from where he was to where God destined him to be. My experience is that typically this is what happens to people who are moving toward and attempting to actualize a God-dreamed future. All of us are going to face difficulties to get from where we are to where we should be. And with this in mind, and with my desire to encourage you, I've extrapolated five principles from this story of Paul's two-year adventure from Jerusalem to Rome. It's, I'm calling it five steps to take courage with you. Last week, I offered step one. Step one is see where you are going. I said that in order to take courage with us, we must constantly hold a picture of our preferred future in our mind. See, regardless what happened to the Apostle Paul, as he traveled from where he was to where he was supposed to be, he, he knew where he was going. He knew that God had called him to Rome. And the ability to see where he was going allowed him to be courageous every step of his journey. Now today, I want to spend my time talking about step two. Take courage, step two, may sound a little strange, but here it is, it's starve your enemies. Starve your enemies. So here's the backstory. 
The day after the Lord told Paul to take courage with him to this new place in his life, we're told in the book of Acts chapter 23 verse 12 that his enemies formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath to not eat or drink until they had killed him. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. When I hear that, I'm reminded that Whenever we're called to a God-inspired future, there are always forces that conspire to keep us from it. The fact is that our dreams always have enemies. And what has occurred to me as I've read this passage about Paul, again to restate it, he is almost torn apart in Jerusalem. Jesus appears to him and says, don't worry, Paul, take courage because I'm taking you to Rome. And then the next day, Paul finds out that some 40 men had conspired that they wouldn't eat or drink until they had killed him. When, when, I, when I read this passage, here's what occurs to me that these guys who had sworn to not eat or drink until they had killed Paul must have gotten very, very hungry. In fact, about four days into this pact that they made, they either drank or died. Why? Their plans were not in agreement with God's plans for Paul. So it didn't matter what kind of oath they made or what kind of attempt they made to take his life. They either starved to death or became publicly known certifiable liars. I love the imagery. We must learn how to starve our enemies. Now, Paul was able to thwart his enemy's plans because if you read the story in Acts 23, he was made aware of their plans, he sought help, he took action to continue moving toward his preferred future. I'm not going to get into the details of that story today. I'll simply remind you that Paul did get to his preferred future and that his enemies either starved to death or were publicly condemned as vow breakers. Today, I suggest to us that in order for us to starve our enemies, we should focus for a few minutes on what Jesus taught us about our enemies. Here are the words of Jesus about how we should deal with our enemies. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. Jesus said, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So with the story of Paul in our minds and the words of Jesus piercing our hearts, I want to spend the next few minutes reminding us how we can courageously face our enemies and get to our God-dreamed futures. And I want to do it like this. Four things Jesus taught us that will help us starve our enemies. Four things Jesus taught us that will help us starve our enemies. And I'm going to base it on what Jesus said, the four things Jesus said to do about our enemies in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 28. Here's the first thing. Here's the first thing Jesus taught us that will help us starve our enemies. It's to love your enemies. Love your enemies. I think that it's interesting, first of all, that Jesus just assumed that we'd have enemies. 
See, Scripture is full of stories about how God's people had to constantly deal with enemies. And all of us need to know that we will have enemies as well. We must not be surprised when opposition comes our way. Don't be disheartened when you have a dream, a sense of calling, an understanding of your destiny, and all kinds of forces seem to conspire to stop it. Your effort to make positive change will bring opposition. Your inevitable success will provoke envy. Sometimes your enemies will just be small-minded, petty people. Sometimes there'll be people who just misunderstand you. Sometimes your enemies will just be plain old evil. Regardless, Jesus talked about your enemies because I can promise you, you will have enemies. But Jesus taught us that the way to deal with our enemies is to love them. Now let's be honest, this is not an easy thing to contemplate, to comprehend, and certainly not to do. He taught us that the way we are to deal with our enemies is first of all to love them. It's necessary when you think about Jesus telling us to love our enemies to remember that the highest form of love in Scripture is not an, uh, uh, in, in regards to something we feel. It's in regard to decisions we make and actions that we take. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us love is not a mushy feeling we have towards someone else. This, that's not what we're supposed to have towards our enemies, a feeling of, oh, I'm in love with you. That's not a realistic thing for us to discuss. But love is certain things. It's decisions we make. It's actions we take. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now this is divine love. Most everyone is familiar with the fact that there are several Greek words translated love in the New Testament. Well, this is the word, of course, agape. Agape love is divine love. It's love that can only be uh, activated if it comes from God. So both in 1 Corinthians 13, where we're told love is all of these things, and in the words of Jesus in Luke 6, where he told us to love our enemies, the word is agape. The thing that I like about that, or one of the things I like about that, is this love for our enemies is not something we have to conjure up by our own will or power. Remember, whatever Jesus asked us to do, even when it seems impossible, he gives us the power to do. And so when he tells us to love our enemies, he's not asking us to do that in our own strength because the fact is we can't. But he offers us his divine power so that divine love will somehow do what seems impossible and actually love our enemies. And what we discover is that when we love like this, we overcome evil with good. If you please, we starve our enemies. 
So the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans and said, hear this, guys, this is, this is a mouthful. He said, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So how are we going to starve our enemies? The first thing we're going to do is we are going to love them to death. That's probably not the right way to say it. We are going to love them, maybe to life, but we're going to starve our enemies by doing the counterintuitive thing. We are going to love them. Okay, here's the second thing. We are to do good to those who hate us. We are to do good to those who hate us. Again, Luke 6, 27 through 28, the words of Jesus. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Guys, as many of you have learned, I have learned, that when we just get up every day and keep doing good, it disarms those who hate us, especially if we do good to them. So... I don't know why the last few weeks I've been, I've been thinking about, uh, I guess maybe standing out here on this balcony and looking at all of you out there and, and being on this property again, I've been thinking about some of the stories of, uh, of how we got here and, you know, how we got from, from, from a less than place than a more than place. It's, a, it's, an, it's an instructive story, and I like to remember it and be grateful for it. Hi, everybody over here. They're so nice. They have me in the shade today, but the only thing I'm missing is being able to see some of you. Anyway, now I see you, and it's good to see you. All right, so, um, and isn't that a nice breeze? I mean, it's like God provided air conditioning. It's amazing. Hallelujah. So... So when, so let's go back 25 years. I try to tell as quickly as possible. Uh, our young and very small congregation did not own a building. We didn't have a place to worship. We were meeting in a smelly old gym at the, at the, at the community house on Main Street. And uh, we'd get the gym uh, just after a group of guys had played basketball. And it smelled like a group of guys had played basketball. And we'd set up and we'd have church. Anyway, we had the opportunity to buy an old bowling alley turned printing factory on Harrison Avenue right off of Main Street here in West Orange. But we first of all had to go through a process to get zoning approvals in order to do that. We didn't think it would be too difficult, but it became very difficult when a group of neighbors in that area organized themselves to oppose us. Now, I know many of them now, and I realize they were basically fine people who didn't understand who we were and were afraid of change, but they organized themselves, and the fact is they viciously opposed us. Um, they didn't just organize to pack out zoning board meetings and scream and holler and ask all kind of crazy questions, some legitimate questions, how are you going to park, some illegitimate questions I won't get into. But nonetheless, we had six months of terribly difficult zoning board meetings fighting for our future. 
Well, um, involved in that was a, a, someone printed a, a flyer, anonymous, of course, uh, of that, where, that, that made up terrible lies about me. I mean, these people should have been fiction writers. I, made lies up about me, made lies up about our church, put them on cars all over the neighborhood around there, distributed them around uh, uh, the neighborhood. This is all in the newspapers. It's, it was a difficult time. All right. We got approved. Thankfully, the zoning board, God bless them, uh, believed the truth uh, and judged the case on its merits, and we got approved, and we turned that old printing factory into a really a beautiful place of worship, such as it is. And fast forward 15 years, and uh, this would be about 10 years ago now, I guess, we secured this property. And yet again, we had to go through another process, this time with the West Orange Planning Board. Well, by now we've established ourselves in town. We've become a, 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 a the, the fact is we were able to get this property because the town leaders wanted us to stay in town and were afraid we'd move out of town. And so they helped us make all this stuff happen. We had a three-way deal between the people who built Vizcaya, the township of West Orange, a life Christian church. I need to not get into all of that. But nonetheless, uh, we secure this property. We go before the planning board. We're thinking it's going to be relatively easy this time. But lo and behold, if yet now this group of neighbors, not Vizcaya, they, Vizcaya didn't exist yet, but a group of neighbors organized themselves and so help me, they did the same thing the neighbors did 15 years ago. They printed an anonymous flyer. They said all kind of lies about me, but this time really more about the church. Put it all over the area. The people who we were going to deal with around the building thought about getting out of the contract. We had to prove the lies weren't true. And then we start going to the planning board and we have, again, probably about six months in a very expensive, difficult process of packed planning board meetings and people opposing us and some legitimate questions, but a lot of things that should never have been said, some of which I can't even repeat some of the sidebars that were said to me. Uh, and nonetheless, when it came time for the vote, the first person on the board voted yes for us, the second person on the board voted yes for us, and the third person, before he voted, made a speech. And he said this, he said, Pastor Smith, you probably don't remember me, and I in fact didn't until he said this, but he said, I was the person who was the leader of the opposition 15 years ago when you applied for zoning on your Harrison Avenue property. And he said, I listened to you make promises about what you would do in this community, and 15 years later I've watched your congregation grow, and you've kept every promise you made. He said something to the effect of, you just keep doing good. And he went on and spoke a little bit in laudatory terms about all of you. And then he said, my vote today is yes. And the next person, yes. And the next person, yes. And the next person, yes. A unanimous decision turned by a guy who 15 years ago tried to stop us from our future and now is cheering us on. What did we do to turn an enemy into a friend? What did we do to turn an enemy into a supporter? We simply got up every day and kept doing good. 
One of the secrets to us getting to where we should go and to disarming our enemies is to stay on mission. Don't ever let anybody get you off mission. And if your mission is a Christian mission, then part of that is going to be doing good. You're doing good to anyone and everyone and all the time. Jesus said, do good to those who hate you. You know what happens when you do that? You starve your enemies. All right, here's the third thing. I'm getting a little fired up today. I, 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 I don't know what to say. I just am. All right, here's the third thing. The third thing is bless those who curse you. Again, Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. So thinking about that this week, I uh, was reminded of Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela died in the year 2013. Of course, Nelson Mandela was the primary leader in liberating South Africa from apartheid. And the day after he died, I read the very lengthy obituary in the New York Times, and I was so moved by part of it that I saved it all these years. And uh, thankfully, I have a good filing system, and we were able to, to find, uh, relocate this o obituary. And here's part of what moved me so much, all right? I'm just going to read from this New York Times obituary of Nelson Mandela. The question... I'm going to read a few paragraphs, okay? The question most often asked about Mr. Mandela was how after whites had systematically humiliated his people, tortured and murdered many of his friends, and cast him into prison for 27 years, he could be so evidently free of spite. The government he formed when he finally won the chance was an improbable fusion of races and beliefs, including many of his former oppressors. When he became president, he invited one of his white wardens to the inauguration, one of his prison guards. He invited him to the inauguration. Mr. Mandela overcame a personal mistrust bordering on loathing to share both power and a Nobel Peace Prize with the white president who preceded him to clerk. And as president from 1994 to 1999, he devoted much energy to moderating the bitterness of his black electorate and to reassuring whites with fears of vengeance. When the question was put to Mr. Mandela in an interview for this obituary in 2007, after such barbarous torment, how do you keep hatred in check? His answer was almost dismissive. Hating Mandela said, clouds the mind. It gets in the way of strategy. Leaders cannot afford to hate. Final paragraph. Except for a youthful flirtation with black nationalism, he seemed to have genuinely transcended the racial passions that tore at his country. Some who worked with him said that this apparent magnanimity came easily to him because he always regarded himself as superior to his persecutors. I mean, how is one not just blown away by the hugeness of someone like Mandela 
as he now began to lead his country into this transition. There's much to be said about this, but I want to focus on the ability of Mandela to bless those who cursed him and who did a lot worse than just curse him. He not only refused to be eaten up with hatred, but more than that, he actively blessed which means to bestow good upon. He actively blessed those who had unjustly imprisoned him for 27 years and who had done much worse to many others. As I was researching some of this this week, I came across uh, some stories about Mandela's faith. I actually had not heard a lot about his faith. He was quiet about his faith. But I was not surprised to find out that Mandela was a Christian who was shaped by a Christian worldview as it concerned how you reconcile a seemingly impossible situation. Here's an example, uh, an article by Guy Sorman, the French-American public intellectual who wrote this in, in 2013. He wrote, Mandela's Christian faith led him from violence to redemption. Mandela he wrote, was a Christian. I'm going to repeat that. Mandela was a Christian, as I learned during a long conversation with him at a 1992 meeting. Faith, he later says, also explains and clarifies the path that led Mandela from communism to liberal democracy and from violent action to peaceful reconciliation. Here's the money phrase right here. I'm quoting Guy Sorman, Mandela was a Christian. Mandela was a Christian. See, when I read that, all of a sudden I realized I wasn't surprised at the magnanimity of Mandela because this is what Christians are supposed to do. We bless those who hate us. When it's all said and done, guys, so help me before God and all of you, the thing that I want to be said about me is Terry Smith was a Christian. What does that mean? Does that mean you were born into a Christian home? No, you're not born a Christian. You're born again a Christian. All right? And part of that is, is that we really believe in Jesus, who he was, what he said, how we're supposed to practice our faith. And part of what Jesus said is, Bless those who curse you. Listen, guys, to all of you who honor me, humble me by allowing me to be your pastor, please hear me when I say this. We must not, we, we, those of us who follow Jesus must not conduct ourselves in the way so many people and sadly so many leaders in our nation are conducting themselves right now. Insult for insult, injury for injury, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's the antithesis of what Christianity is about. We are told by Jesus that we're to be turned the other cheek, go the extra mile people. Now, this doesn't mean that we compromise principle. It certainly doesn't mean that we compromise truth. It doesn't mean that we don't fight the good fight for right. It just means that we don't fight in the same way the world does. 
See, what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians is, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, the weapons we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds. See, this divine power is found not fighting the same way everybody else is fighting. This divine power is found in divine love. It's found in prayer. It's found in doing good and even blessing people who hate us. And here's the fourth and final thing that Jesus taught us that might help us starve our enemies. Luke 6, 27 through 28. You know what? This may actually be one of the most important messages I've preached for a while. Because if Christians would practice Christianity, this nation would be a different place. This world would be a different place. Here's the fourth thing. I digress. Pray for those who mistreat you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus, Luke 6, 27 through 28. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. I have said many times that we pray for people, even and especially our enemies, and that we pray against the evil forces that influence people to say and do evil things. I'll say it again. We pray for people. We pray against the evil forces that influence people. But I've been thinking this week in a way a little different than I've ever thought before about this. I've been thinking this week about how that many times we are our own worst enemy. We are our own worst enemy. Jesus in Mark's gospel said, Mark 7, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. If I can just be real frank, sometimes I think that we are too focused on enemies without when we really should put more focus on the enemies within. It's only our own stuff that can keep us from our destiny. I hope you hear me when I say that. I'm going to tell you that the forces from outside of you that conspire against you, that try to keep you from God's plans for your life, if you'll stay on mission and hear the words of Jesus, ultimately you don't need to worry about them. It might be difficult, but you'll get where you're supposed to go. See, God will help you with that. But the only way that God can help you with the junk that's inside us is when we repent, when we get honest, when we ask Him to help us. And the Holy Spirit begins to work with us as we engage our will to make us more like Jesus. And as it concerns the subject of enemies, I can't help but remember something else Jesus said. Matthew chapter 7, he said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus said. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. Guys, 
Part of what happens when we're believers is that before we judge others, we judge ourselves. So when we pray for our enemies, let's also pray for ourselves. We pray prayers like prayers that are found throughout Scripture. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew in me a right spirit. In other words, when you see an enemy and that bile right raises up in your throat and you're tempted to, 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 to judge them and, and perhaps be right in doing so and you hear the words of Jesus telling you how to conduct yourself towards that enemy, one of the ways to help you learn to love and do good and to bless and to pray for your enemies is then to begin to pray about the stuff in your own heart. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew in me a right spirit. Examine and see if there be any wicked way in me. Deliver me from being judgmental, from being ungracious, for unbridled ambition, for thinking I am better than others. Forgive me for not loving my enemies, for not doing good to those who hate me, for not blessing those who curse me, for not praying for my enemies. I pray for myself now. Help me, Jesus, be more like you. I promise this to all of you. <laughs> you are going to get where God's called you to go if you'll take courage with you. And part of that is having the courage to face your enemies in the way Jesus taught us to. And the other part of that is to make sure that the enemies within our own heart do not keep us from our destiny. I've asked Coy to come and to sing again a little bit of this song that talks about how that we can turn evil to good. Hey guys, look, look around at this crazy world and think about the evil forces trying to keep us from what God's planned for us. And know this, part of the business we're in is taking evil and turning it into good. <laughs> 